I guess by way of announcement, I mentioned earlier that uh, different ones had taken days of the week that they would be praying specifically for our church, what God would have us do in the days to come. Uh, Sunday is my day, Monday is Tom's, Tuesday is Dan's, Wednesday is Lonnie's, Thursday is Tess's, and Dave has moved over to Thursday. Friday is Jeff's, we'll leave that with Jeff, and Saturday is Gia's. We're going to continue this until Easter, okay? This is not an endless project, but during this time of Lent in a specific way, in a special way, we will pray for our church and that God would give us wisdom the days to come. Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We will come to it in a bit. Today we begin what I hope will be a helpful series. For lack of a better way to put it, where do we go from here? In his book published in 2018, uh, Alan Jacob writes about five Christian intellectuals. The title of the book is The Year of Our Lord, 1943, Christian Humanism in an Age of Crisis. And he writes about these five Christian intellectuals, some of whom you may be familiar with, who early on in 1943 had written or had spoken about what the church should do. Because by January of 1943, it became somewhat obvious that the Allies were going to win World War II, that the Nazis were going to be defeated, the Japanese were going to be defeated, and the Allies would be victorious. And what was the church to do in that light? The five people, by the way, I just mentioned quickly, Jacques Maritain, who was a theologian and philosopher, T.S. Eliot, you may be familiar with, a poet. Um, By the way, Maritain gave the Terry Lectures in January of 1943. C.S. Lewis, I think many have heard of him, gave the Clark Lectures. W.H. Auden, a poet who was teaching at Swarthmore College at that point, gave a special talk called Vocation and Society. And then Simone Weil, um, a thinker and writer who had, was writing and just finishing up The Need for Roots. She died later that year in August of 1943. And they were all saying this is what the church should do. And Jacobs argues they all got it wrong. They got it wrong. It's a remarkable thing to say because this is an impressive cast of characters. There was someone who got it right in Jacob's opinion. And we will see this hopefully later in the series. What I want us to consider in the weeks to come is where do we go from here as Christians, as the church, as citizens, as a nation? How can we do what is right? How can we get it right? If these five intellectuals did not get it right, it means our task is all that much more difficult. How do we know what is the right thing to do? I think... To begin with, we need to ask ourselves, where are we now? And our situation is quite different in many ways from the individuals in 1943. We may see ourselves engaged in a great conflict, but it does not seem that victory is on the horizon. Quite the opposite. As to where we are now, I think most of us would agree that we are in the midst of a pandemic. Okay? It has lasted longer than any of us thought it would. It has brought about significant changes in various aspects of society and the church, um, the economy. We find 
a new situation in which the state is dictating to the church what it can and cannot do. In other times, this might have been called persecution. We can also agree, I think, that divisions have sharply come into view. The political divisions, I think, seem obvious. They've always been there, but they've really become hardened. The left versus the right, the progressive versus conservative. But also in the church, we find divisions. We find people leaving churches because of politics or because of policies with regard to the pandemic. And I think we would all agree we don't know how this is all going to play out. Politically, for example, this past week, Naomi Wolf, who is a feminist writer and a former advisor to President Bill Clinton, said the following, America is becoming a totalitarian state before our eyes under President Biden's leadership. The United States is swiftly moving into a coup situation, a police state. She's obviously someone from the left, and yet she sees the danger of totalitarianism. In a recent book that just came out last September, uh, Live Not by Lies, a Manual for Christian Dissidents, Rod Dreyer argues that what we are facing is a softer therapeutic form of totalitarianism, which exploits preference for personal pleasure over principles. In other words, we will give up whatever freedoms we might have just so that we can have the pleasures that we want. In the 1960s, Philip Reif, who was not a Christian, by the way, wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. It's a, a classic work. And he argues that in the West, the death of God, as, you know, God is no longer important, has given birth to a new civilization in which the individual has been liberated to seek his or her own pleasures and to manage his or her own emerging anxieties. He argues that it used to be people were the religious man, as he puts it, who lived according to belief in transcendent principles that ordered human life around communal purposes, that is, the common good. But in the modern world, we have shift, shifted from, becoming, from being the religious man or woman to the psychological man or woman. Such a person does not believe there is a transcendent order and that life's purpose is to find one's own way experimentally. Just got to go out and find out how things are. He writes that instead of understanding ourselves as pilgrims on a meaningful journey with others, okay, humans are now seen as tourists who travel through life according to each one's own itinerary with personal happiness as the ultimate goal. Not the common good, but personal happiness. And by the way, in the modern world, I would say that the idea of pilgrimage or process seems so foreign and so inefficient. It's such a waste of time. If you know where you want to go, then get there. And what's this idea of pilgrimage and sort of wandering around? What we found in the 20th century with hard totalitarianism in, in communist countries is a vision of the world that required the eradication of the Christian faith. This is also true of soft totalitarianism, whether it is acknowledged or not. We live in a post-Christian world. And we find that those who oppose the Christian faith do so when we stand up for our principles. But interestingly enough, oftentimes they don't know why they oppose us. They don't know why it is that they want to get rid of the Christian faith. It is a soft totalitarianism. So, 
We know where we are right now. To begin to answer the question, where do we go from here? We need to first answer the question, who are we? Who are we? I'll just warn you in advance, don't be surprised if some of what you'll be hearing in the next few weeks and today will sound familiar. I hope that it does sound familiar because in teaching I have sought to prepare each of you to live and to walk in the faith as God has commanded us. Today we'll lay the foundation. And that foundation, in a word, is calling. Our text is 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 to 24. And before we read it, I just tell you, Paul does an amazing thing here. He takes a word which he usually gives theological content to. And then he uses it in an entirely new way. We see this most clearly in verse number 20, uh, particularly in the King James. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. The NIV has let or each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. The second mention is that of salvation, when God called him. The first mention is the situation in life, or what some would call vocation. Then Paul ends in verse number 24 with these words, Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. That is, the situation in life is the situation to which God has called us to, calling. And we are to remain there. Follow along, if you would, as I read this, verses 17 to 24. Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man is responsible to God, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation God called him to. We've looked at 1 Corinthians in the past. It's one of those books that is really misunderstood for, on a number of issues. But just to give a quick background, Paul had written to the Corinthians. That letter has been lost to us. We don't have it. But they respond to him. We don't also have that. But then he writes to them, and that is what we call 1 Corinthians. In the first six chapters, he addresses issues that he had heard from the people who brought the letter. People had actually physically carried the letter to Paul where he was, and they had told him what was going on in the Corinthian church, and he addresses those issues. But beginning in chapter 7, he now responds to their new understanding. They think that they know better than Paul. He's the one who brought the gospel to them, but they think that they have better understanding on certain issues. And these issues are marked off by the phrase, now about. In Greek, it's peredei. And you see it in chapter 7, verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about, 
Then verse 25, now about virgins. Chapter 8, verse 1, now about food sacrifice to idols. Chapter 12, verse 1, now about spiritual gifts. And then verse uh, in chapter 16, now about the collection for God's people. And then in verse 12, now about our brother Apollos. So he is responding to what they have said. By the way, I think there are two more that don't have the now about. Uh, the one is in chapter 11, where Paul deals with the Lord's Supper. It's the passage that we read before communion. And then in chapter 15, Paul writes about the resurrection, in which the Corinthians have a whole different view of resurrection, and he seeks to correct that. As Paul answers them, there is a logical progression, if you wish, to his argument or his responses. Um, by the way, I think that he addresses the issues not in the order that they gave him, but in the order that, of importance. And so he builds up to the point where we get to the resurrection. He uses what is called the ABA approach. A is he makes his case. He, this is what he thinks. And then B, if you're not care- it seems completely unrelated to what he's talking about. And then he goes back to A and he finishes up his argument. So he started this in chapter 5 where there's the question, there's a man who is having a sexual affair with his father's wife. And the church thinks this is great. So at the beginning of uh, chapter 5, he writes about the immoral brother. And then he makes this sharp turn, and he starts talking about the Passover. And then he comes back and he says, okay, this guy, you, you need to put him out of the church. In this chapter, we see it as well. At the beginning of chapter 7, he talks about marriage. And then, beginning in verse number 17, he seems to be gone off the track. He's talking about whether or not you're Jewish or Gentile, circumcised or not circumcised, a slave or free. And then in verse 25, he comes back to the issue of marriage. In the first 16 verses, he talks about those who are married or have been married, or they might be widowed or widowed. But in verse 25 to the end, he talks about those who have not yet been married. So, Paul has a principle. It's in the first 16 verses. It's in the last verses from 25 to the end of the chapter. But it is reinforced here by verses 17 to 24. And it is this. Stay as you are. When you became a Christian, when God called you, you had a particular vocation. Stay there. That's what you should do. The call to Christ has created a change in your relationship with God. It need not create a change in your relationship with other people. We think that this may have been the Corinthian problem. They're like, well, I was married when I became a Christian, so I guess I shouldn't be married anymore. Or vice versa. And Paul's like, no, wherever you were when God called you, that's where you should stay. Three times in our text today, verses 17, 20, and 24, Paul says, remain in the situation you were in when God called you. This is the principle. Okay. There's something very powerful here that we may miss if we're not careful. Yes, we are are glad to affirm that God called us to become his children. We heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit worked in our hearts, and we became the children of God. But I think that oftentimes we fail to recognize that that is not 
the beginning of God's work in our life. God was already working in our lives even before he called us to become his children. He gave us a vocation. He gave us a calling. He gave us skills. He gave us a thing, a desire to do certain things. Even before we became Christians. So God's dealings with us as individuals did not begin when we became Christians. It began long, long before that. So if you were in a particular situation when God called you, stay there. You don't need to change your situation. As Paul puts it, keeping God's commands is what counts. You should recognize that your place in society is precisely where God has placed you. Your status, your social status, should not change because you've become a Christian. By the way, we see this in the Gospels as well. Um, With John the Baptist, I believe this is in Luke chapter 3, um, soldiers and tax collectors come to him to be baptized. They repent and they, they want to be baptized. And they're like, teachers, what should we do? And John doesn't say, listen, you've got to quit your job. I mean, being a tax collector, you just can't do that. Soldier, no. He says, don't collect more than you're required to, tax collectors. Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. That's to the soldiers. In other words, stay exactly where you are because that's where God has placed you. Then we see it with Zacchaeus. He read it to us several weeks ago. After his conversion, Jesus then said, you've got to give up this tax collecting stuff. And Zacchaeus doesn't say, I'm going to stop being a tax collector. What he says is, I'm going to make restitution. He says that he would make amends. He would give half of his money to the poor, and he would give back four times as much to those he had cheated. Not a word about, I've got to quit my job. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. So using this passage in 1 Corinthians 7, let's lay the foundation of this series by answering the question, who are we? And there are two answers to this. First of all, we are those who have been called by God to salvation, to become his children. And we are those who have a calling. We can see in this that there are two kinds of calling. The general call, if you wish, in which God calls us to be his children, to be united with Christ by faith. It is our calling to salvation, to be the body of Christ, to be a part of his people. And by the way, if you go upstairs and look through the theological section, usually if you look up the word calling, this is what they're talking about. Um, That when God calls us by his spirit to become his children, we become his children. William Perkins, I'll talk about him in a few moments, said that there are four duties in line with the general calling, that we are to call on the name of the Lord in prayer, we are to further the good estate of the church, we are to serve one another in the duties of love, and we are to walk worthy of the calling we have received. This is taken, by the way, from Ephesians 4. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That is the general call. The particular call is what we would call in today's world vocation. One of the most significant works done on vocation was done almost 500 years ago by William Perkins. Um, He wrote something called a treatise on the vocations or the callings of men with the sorts and kinds of them and the right use thereof. Vocation is more familiar to us. And I think it's a little less confusing because if you say God called us to salvation and then we have a calling, 
we might be confused. But I actually prefer calling rather than vocation because vocation is almost seen as a finished product. And it's the end of it. And it fails to take into account that God is always calling us. He's always calling us to do something. And the calling, in fact, may change. But God is always dealing with us in our lives. Perkins said that vocation or calling is a, a certain kind of life ordained and imposed on man by God for the common good. So it's a certain condition of life, a certain way of living in the world. Um, by the way, one of the reasons that I like the word calling is because it means there is someone who is calling. There's a caller. It is God who calls us. Or if it's a vocation, you know, what color is your parachute, that type of thing. It's almost like a finished product that you have to go out and search for rather than recognizing that there is God who calls you. It is ordained by God. It is imposed by God. Uh, He establishes us. He gives us the desires. He gives us the skills. It is God who gives us calling. Now, let's be clear. I don't think that God makes you go into a particular calling, but I would argue that he has selected one for you. Consider where you are, when you were born, the family into which you were born, the skills, the, the desires that you have. They all lead to what we would call calling. And the purpose of these callings is for the common good. It's not simply for you. It's not for your own enrichment or your own satisfaction, but for your family, your neighbors, your community, your city, state, nation, for humanity. And if this is the case, there are no callings from God that should be considered dishonorable or less honorable, maybe shameful. So, for example, someone who collects our trash, one could say that person has a calling from God for the common good. It is not a shameful or dishonorable calling. So at this point, I want to, I've already mentioned several times, but the calling we have is from God and it is for the common good. We need to recognize God's wisdom in this calling. He has seen the road ahead of us far before we could, and he has given us, given us the calling that is appropriate for us. Otherwise, Otherwise, we might, in fact, look at the situation around us and say, this is what I need. This is the vocation. This is what I need to do. This is the career that I will choose. You may remember the story of Esther. When Haman had told the king, here's 10,000 talents, and I want to be able to wipe out the Jews. And the king didn't know that Esther was Jewish. And her uncle Mordecai said, Who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this? She didn't say, oh, I better marry the king so I can protect my people. They had already been married for a period of time, but God had put her there. I remember um, attending orientation as a graduate student at UCLA, and the chair of the department, a wonderful man, was saying, this is, the great, this is a great time to get your degree in history because there are jobs out there. 
Well, by the time I got done with my degree, there were no jobs out there. You can't make a decision based on needs or on, a, on um, the opportunities. It is God who has imposed, who has ordained, he has given you a calling. This means that we as individual Christians and as the church of God need to recognize that we are where we are right now for such a time as this. And we are called, the heart of our calling is to redeem time. And we are to do that by walking before God, by reading the signs of the times, by serving God's purpose in our generation. Three things quickly about a calling, a personal calling. Everyone has a calling, okay? Everyone must have a personal particular calling to walk in. And you shouldn't say, oh no, I'm in preparation for my calling. So for example, again, as a professor, I had Christian students who were like, who did not really take their time as a student seriously because they were pre they're getting ready to jump into a life of ministry. And I'm like, no, no, no. Where you are right now, this is your calling. Okay. You have a calling right now. There's no point in our life, in our youth, in our old age, where we say, well, I don't have a calling. We all have a calling. And it is the best calling possible for us. God has ordained it and imposed it on I think he knows what is best for us. He has chosen the best calling for us. And if we are going to walk in our calling, in our occupation, our vocation, it must go hand in hand with our calling as a Christian, as the people of God. Everyone has a calling, believers and unbelievers alike. We see that in our, in our text. Paul's Paul saying, you know, you had a situation in life. You had a calling before you became a Christian. So unbelievers, believers both have a, a calling. Um, the difference is, as believers, we recognize that there is someone who has called us, that it is God. And we are to live it in conjunction with being a Christian. So if, in fact, let's say you're called to be in business... You cannot say, well, I'm a good Christian. I have the general calling. God has called me to be a Christian. But in my particular calling, you know, if, if you don't cut corners, if you don't cheat a little, you're not going to get ahead. No. Being called by God to be his child must go hand in hand with the calling or the vocation that he has given you. I find it interesting that over the years as a pastor, um, people have come to me at different points and oftentimes quite desperate to want to know what they should do with their lives. In, in the language of our sermon today, they want to know what their calling is. And I would say in every case, at least that comes to mind, they were not in fact walking in the general call as a Christian. They weren't doing what they should be as a child of God. But they want to know what they should do with their life, if you're the real world. And now they go hand in hand. We are called by God. He has put us where we are. And it isn't for our own good. It's for the common good. We've talked before about choosing a calling and 
I think rather than going over this again, I would just say that in fact, God has given us a desire. He has given us gifts. And then we have the people around us, the people around us who say, you know, you're really good at that. Or we think you should do that. Now, they're not God, they're not you know, all knowing. But if you have other people confirming, yeah, that's something you're really good at, that's something you should do, then we should take that as something to consider that God has given us particular gifts. And wherever we are, as Paul tells us, we are to stay. We should not try to have a change in status. In this passage, two wonderful truths emerge. First of all, God called us to be his children. He initiated the process. He provided the means for us to be adopted into his family. He sent his son. Uh, we sang in the hymn today, Elect from Every Nation. Uh, we saw it in Second John and Third John, The Chosen Lady. Uh, God began the process. If he had not, no one would ever be saved because we do not seek after God. The second wonderful truth here is that God was already in, at work in our lives before we became his children. He didn't just start working in our lives when he saved us. He arranged the circumstances of our lives, our families, our education, our abilities, our inclinations. God has been working in our lives all along. When we are told that we are knit together in our mother's womb, God was at work then. And God has given us the inclinations and the desires that we have. So our status in the world is irrelevant. What is important is God's call in our lives. Our lives are determined by God's call, not by our situation. That's important because we now find ourselves in what for some people is a very dark and scary situation. And we do not make decisions or say, well, this, this is the career I'm going to choose because of the current situation. We, in fact, God has put us here just like Esther. Esther had no idea, not an inkling that there would be this crisis of the annihilation of the Jewish people, but God had in fact arranged the circumstances. Was it not God who made her beautiful and desirable to the king? Wherever we are, we are to be faithful and obedient wherever God has called us to be. I don't know if you still have your Bibles open to our text today. But I would point out to you verse number 26 that comes after our text. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. What was the present crisis? There are different opinions. Um, I think we can agree that we may not know what the present crisis was, but the Corinthians did. Paul did. In the same way that in 2 Corinthians, he talks about his thorn in the flesh. Centuries later, we're still trying to guess what was his thorn in the flesh. But the Corinthians knew what it was. In the same way, they knew what was, in fact, the present crisis. I'm convinced that Paul was talking about persecution. Not in the future, but at the present time. 
From the book of Acts, we are told that Paul experienced persecution. The Lord appeared to him before he went to Corinth and said, don't be afraid. I think it was actually when he was in Corinth. Don't be afraid. I have people there. Paul was taken from, the, from court or to court uh, in front of the proconsul Gallio. And then Paul made a vow with regard to his safety. This is something that usually slips by people. They don't realize it. And at the end of his 18 months in Corinth, he cut off his hair, seeming to indicate that for 18 months he didn't cut his hair because he had made a vow to God with regard to his safety. Whatever the distress was, they knew what it was. Paul's position is the same as it's been all throughout chapter 7. It is good for you to remain as you are. You are those who have been called by God. This is not a statement of pride. It it can be seen that way, but no. It is, in fact, one of profound humility. To recognize there's no way I would have ever become a Christian if God had not called me. If God hadn't taken the initiative, I would have never become a Christian. I did not begin the process. God did. We did not seek him, he called us. And he called us to be his children, to be a family, to be the church. Not merely a collection of individuals. In Ephesians 3, Paul writes that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Paul uses three different words here that have the prefix sin, like synthesis, S-Y-N. Heirs together, members together, sharers together, and all of this is in Christ. What Paul saw in the church is that God has called and is calling people into a multiracial, multicultural community like a beautiful tapestry all these different threads that are being woven in with members from a wide range of colorful backgrounds and diversity woven into a harmonious tapestry. So as the gospel spreads throughout the world, this new community develops in history. John Stott, in writing on this passage, says that history is the theater, the world is the stage, church members in every land are the actors, God is the playwright, the director, and the producer. But where we are right now in American history, um, we may begin to doubt this. And part of this is because in the modern world, um, history has been forgotten, or it has been ignored, or it's been twisted and revised to where it is no longer recognizable. Rod Dreyer mentions a quote from Cicero in his book, not to know what happened before you were born is to remain a child forever. And we live in a time in which people have forgotten their history. And things may look dark, may be scary, we don't know what's going on, but God does. And he has put us where we are right now. J.I. Packer said of the church in the modern world, the church is a thousand miles wide and half an inch deep. I think the pandemic has revealed the weaknesses of the church, the thinness of it, 
the tinniness of it, but also its ignorance of history. I shared something with Tom and Dave where someone said that they'd done a survey and they found that 2020 was the worst year in human history, except for all the others. I mean, we think, boy, what a terrible thing this is, this pandemic we've gone through. Uh, the, the world has gone through worse things, and the church has suffered worse things. Dark days may be ahead. We won't be the first. We will not be the first. So for us to begin the process of where do we go from here, we need to realize who we are. We are those who are called by God to be his children. And we are those who have been given calling by God. He has put us precisely where we are supposed to be. I think deep down there are times when we wish we had lived in another time another place. No, this is where God put us. Well, we wish maybe there wasn't a pandemic. I wish I'd lived in a time there wasn't a pandemic. Well, this is where God has put you. This is where he's put me. And we need to recognize that. So before we begin to answer the question, where do we go from here? We have to ask, answer the question, who are we? We are the called ones. We are the ones who have calling. We are the ones God has put here at this place at this time for his purpose. We are the people of God. And let's not lose sight of that. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we said in the prayer of confession, we often do not trust you, but trust in ourselves or other things. We find ourselves in what may be difficult days, may get even more difficult. We wish that we weren't here, someplace else, a better time, no problems. But you, in your grace, have called us to be your children. And just as you placed Esther as queen, you have put us here as your people in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of great divisions, in a time of uncertainty. We are here because you put us here. We were born years and years ago. This isn't a last minute thing that you've done. You've been preparing us all along the way. And as we've seen from what Paul wrote, even before we became Christians, you were working in our lives. You have a plan for human history. You have a plan for your church. You have a plan for us. May we trust you. Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Spirit to be without food and drink for 40 days and 40 nights, to be tempted by Satan. One might well wonder, is this the beginning of a ministry or the end of it? 
but he trusted you. May we follow his example. We are your people by your grace. Each one of us is unique. We all have different callings. But we are all here at this time, this place, to share the gospel, to share the love of Christ, to share your light with those who are in darkness. I pray that in the weeks to come, as we look at this issue of where do we go from here, you would give me wisdom as I prepare sermons. You would open our hearts to receive your truth. Above all, give us grace. We thank you for this last Sunday of February, second Sunday of Lent. Grateful for the opportunity to come and worship you. Here at the end, we think in a particular way of Tim and Kim celebrating their fourth anniversary For Nevin and Jalen, we are grateful for your work in their lives. May your spirit and your grace go with us. May we be conscious of the presence of your spirit with us as we walk through this world, dark though it may be. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.